90% of all business communications isn't even noticed. And of the 10% that is noticed, 6% isn't even liked. So that leaves 4% of all business communications that's known and liked. That's where I live. If you're at all curious what it's like to start an ad agency at the worst possible time, this might be the podcast for you. That's because I started one last year and my God, it is hard. So what I'm doing is I'm talking to people who have found success in our industry and then applying what I learned to my own life and business. If it doesn't work, I'm screwed. Today's guest is Michael Owen, and one of the most interesting things about him is, you know, he's an advertising guy, he's built companies, he's an entrepreneur too, he's been very successful, never had one that's failed, which is remarkable because you have to click show me more at the bottom of his LinkedIn you know, job history four times. His list is so fucking long, it's crazy. And instead of just creating one agency that offers every service, he broke it out. He started with a you know content creative agency and then realized he needed strategy help. Uh, and so he built a strategy agency. And then he was able to get specialized in, hey, this is what I do. We do creative stuff really well. And then if they needed strategy, he'd be like, well, you should talk to my strategy agency. And I've never heard of anything like that. That's super smart. So uh, I definitely took a lesson out from that. I don't know if I'm going to shift anything right now, but it is an interesting way to go about it, particularly if you're, if you're just starting out and trying to think through things. A big regret that I have is trying to do everything right away. It makes it pretty difficult, and having a more specialized, targeted offering I think would have helped me a lot. The other thing I want to mention is that uh, my dad oftentimes listens to these episodes sometimes before I put them up. He listened to this one. Big Michael fan. He wants to like fly to England and meet the guy, hang out with him, drink a couple beers. Fan of this guy, so he's a charming guy. He's got that. He reminds me of me. He's got that like funny, self-deprecating sense of humor, and he's just a, a humble dude. So looking forward to that conversation, sharing that with you guys. In terms of gush, you know, I think the the biggest thing that I I thought might be worth mentioning is you know we brought a couple people on since the last time I talked, uh, one of which is a, is a project manager. And I oftentimes debate whether or not it's okay for me to talk about people or companies without using their names. And I think when you get permission, it is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just briefly talk about my experience with this person. He's come on and hasn't immediately been helping. He's kind of been creating problems, or at least that's how I feel. And it shouldn't be me managing that, but my COO, who's going to manage all of that, wasn't in the mix. Whether I'm right or not, it felt like this person wasn't the right fit. There were things that popped up and happened once the COO was back in the mix that just made me react emotionally right away. You know, being like, you need to fire this guy, da 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 And something I notice and have had a problem with probably for a while is that I'm, you know, a pretty sensitive guy and I am passionate about what I do. And if I feel something, I don't give myself a chance always to go for a walk, take some stress off, you know, and at least try and do that. I react. And again, like, I don't know if I'm wrong about that decision, but I do know that I, it probably wouldn't hurt for me to take a step back. Along those lines, because I am new to having a company and having a team and that sort of thing, 
it is difficult sometimes to know if the way that you're going about things is okay, if you're being fair, if you're looking at things honestly. You know, sometimes it's really tough to trust that your perception is reality. And so another thing I have is, you know, trying to sift through what is from what isn't. Am I being reasonable here? Um, Am I being too much? Like, what's fair? What type of leader do I want to be? You know, and looking for permission almost. Whether or not that's healthy or right, I think that it does lead to something that is healthy and right, which is an openness and a willingness and a uh, persistence to get feedback from others. I don't want to get into my psychology and I may not even totally know the answer, but I love getting feedback. Uh, even if it's anonymous, I don't care, but knowing what someone thinks about me, particularly when it's professional, uh, because I can disconnect myself from who I am from that professional person sometimes. And it doesn't hurt my feelings, or at least it hasn't yet. I just appreciate it because I want to know as much as I can. I want to have as much data about how I'm doing so I could be better in every way. And when I do that, it's not like I'm going to right away take the feedback and implement it and trust it. But usually I I can tell right away that it's like, okay, that's true. That's a problem I've known I've had. But either way, it's worth investigating. And getting feedback is a gift. It's amazing to be able to have that data, that knowledge, and, you know, be able to just be the best best leader, best creative, best whatever that you possibly can be. I don't always give advice. I'm I'm more about getting it and just sharing what I hear. But if I had any piece of advice, it's like get comfortable with feedback, ask for feedback. It is totally awesome. So anyways, that's that. Uh, Working through trying not to have an emotional reaction, always asking for feedback and not sure what I'm going to do with this. Uh, I guess you could call him an employee. Um, But That's not why we're here. We're here to talk to Michael. And so without further ado, Michael Owen. You have uh, quite a resume. And and by by that, I mean, it's very long. So when you're on LinkedIn, you can expand, right? You can show five more things to keep going down the list. And I had to do that two or three times to get your entire work history. And you would think that you're, you know, 120 years old, but, but you're not. You're you know, middle-aged and you had this midlife crisis, as I understand it. Sure. Uh, you started this blog where you're writing a blog post every day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as somebody who's a founder and 31 years old and, um, you know, I'm just curious, when you were my age, where were you at? And then how did you get to this? I was one year into running the first of my agencies. Um, but the thing is, Tim, it, it's... Um, I'm just, I just believe in narrowly focused brands. The reason why there are lots of things on the resume is simply because I was up against full service agencies. Okay. So a full service agency, as we know, will do end to end communications solutions for businesses, but I, I simply broke them down. I built teams who were exceptional at brand building teams that were exceptional at something else and created brands for each of them. So it created several doorways to the same place. So um, it looks like it's all smoke and mirrors, really. But the team was exceptional with that one thing, Tim. So I built a brand around that one thing. That's amazing. I've never heard of that strategy. So you basically, instead of having one agency that did everything, you broke it down into specialties and um, would have a specific pitch. And you're like, we're the best at what we do because it's, you know this is all we do. Yeah. But really, you had you know four other ones in the mix at the same time. 
I mean, the, the short story is for about 10 years when I was running a creative agency, I suppose I called it then. But then I met a guy from Sarchi's. He was one of the head planners of Sarchi's. And then he came along and said, you don't really understand brand. And I was thinking, fucking hell, you know, my ego took a bit of a punch. I was writing in magazines about, you know, we're really quite good at getting people found. But this fella said, well, what do you get them fucking, what do you get them found for? You know, awareness is cheap. You know, if you're just trying to get your clients to outspend other people, that's just a shitty way to do business. And I thought, I think he's probably right. Mm -hmm. So strangely, after 10 years, so to answer your question, I was 40 at the time. A guy walks into my life and I'm employing a lot of people, 20 people were turning over a a million quid and he goes you don't really know what you're doing and I thought I think he's right <laughs> so I set up a brand consultancy with him so basically all that happened virtually overnight Tim was people would knock on the door of my agency and they'd go I want you to tell people to find me and I'd say cool why are you different and better and they go I don't fucking know so I said well go to my brand consultancy next door and they will help to work out why you're different and better and then come back to me and we'll tell the world why you're different and better. I'll get you the attention, but let's work out what we're trying to get you the attention for first. So strangely, I, keep, I kept building businesses by accident. It sounds strategic, but it probably wasn't, Tim. The point is, and I'll you know, calm down in a second, these businesses, um, <laughs> they kind of happened by accident. I just kind of bumbled through life. Someone said, you're a bit shit at this, aren't you? I went, yeah, and I thought, how can I mend it? And I mended it, and another business was born. That was it. That's great. I'm actually going through the process of, uh, you know, trying to rebrand um, a business, uh, like the only client that we have, which is on a retainer. And um, I always think of myself as a strategic creative. I can create a brief for myself in my mind. I can find insights. I can figure out how to make sure a brand sounds different and looks different and feels different than other competitors in their space, but what goes into making a great brand? What, what does your consultancy do from start to finish before passing on to the next step? For me, it starts with bravery, and that's why I was interested to talk to you, because there's, there's something wrong with you, I think, isn't there, on, on some level? You're a crazy guy. There's something not quite right. Is that right? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 depends, it depends in what way, but but yeah, I mean, I'm crazy to try and start my own thing and spill my guts on a platform where you're normally not supposed to, but... No, I mean, as an aside, if ever I can help you with anything, because you can certainly help me, you remind me, the little bits I've seen about you, Tim, remind me, you remind me about the importance of bravery, and I think this might come back to your question. Something someone quoted me as saying once, which I've kind of spat out once, that it's better to be different than it is to be better. Mm -hmm. The battle of better is boring. It's a leapfrog over somebody else, and then they leapfrog over you, and then you try and leapfrog over them. But different is much more powerful, it seems to me. But different, true difference that you can own requires bravery and letting down your guard and being vulnerable. I love vulnerable brands that are just being themselves. Um, when I listened to your conversation with uh, Mr. Tenenbaum, it was interesting. Um, I'm a big fan. However, a lot of it was very, I don't mean this as a criticism, actually, because he's a godlike being, but it was almost uh, like a, mach a machine-like uh, formulaic approach to selling things. And I'm just super naive. I'm super naive. I just think, you know, if I like it I'm, and I have a need, then I'll buy it. So a lot of it's about context and timing and me just telling you how it is. And But, but being brave is important, I think, if, you, if we're working with clients who want to, to be found more 
remembered and chosen? Because I think mine and your job at a base level is helping people to be found, remembered and chosen. So in terms of uh, even digging into this further, I don't know if you're able to, maybe if you approach it with some ambiguity or maybe the client wouldn't mind or it was so long ago. Can you take me through an example of when a client came to you and you had to start from scratch or, or you know, take a step back with them because they really didn't know who they were uh, to build the brand? Again, I have to say bravery was a big part of it. Um, you may have heard of, because um, I'm a bit out of touch with the global reputation of this particular brand, but there's a software company called Sage. So Sage Software, which is a category leader, and they're based here in the north of England, actually. And they invited me in because I was more famous for the creative agency. And they, I remember the brief, Tim. I was stood at the end of a table. I stood there and there were 14 of them around the table. I said, look, you've invited me here to tell you about the, um, to help you to develop a strategy to communicate your, um, what was it, your core proposition. And I said, I can't because I don't know what your core proposition is. What's worse is neither do you. Now, when that happened, clearly I'm either going to get chinned, which is a Northeast UK word for beaten up okay and they rocked back in their chair and they ended the meeting and then they stopped the pitch process and they asked me what I thought I should do and I said go and see Violet Bick who are they I said they're my brand consultancy we have to remind ourselves what has made you great because they were crapping themselves about new entrants to the market Tim so I hope I'm answering your question here I had to stop I said no and I wrote something recently on 50 odd which is one of the reasons we're chatting today I think is that the, 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 most, the most common reason why people do shit work is because they didn't say no. For me, the methodology is bravery and precision with how you react to a brief. Uh, and make sure that the client isn't both diagnosing and self-prescribing because they diagnose, which is fine, but then they self-prescribe about what, they, what you should do to solve their problem. Okay, so, so they came to you. They were like, hey, we're ready to you know, get into executional stuff. Did they... Did they have a tagline? Did they think they knew what their brand was? What did they think their core values were? Or really just no work had been done on the brand? Not really. I mean, the thing that made Sage great was a moment in time. And the tagline was actually a campaign line, which made them globally significant, virtually not overnight, of course, but let's say within two years. And they basically said eight out of 10 accountants recommend Sage. Got it. They've done a, a tiny piece of research. Maybe they only asked 10 people and eight of them said sage, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that was what sent them stratospheric. But a lot of the time in, as businesses grow, what got you here won't get you there. Um, so they needed something else. So I had to help them with the brand consultancy. Okay. So this is, I, I love playing devil's advocate to better understand something. So with that said, what's wrong with a company in a space, if other people aren't able to own the fact that eight out of 10 of their customers recommend them, you know, something that's so tangible like that to use as an entire strategy and brand platform. It's like, you know, this, this, we don't want to sell ourselves. We want to let these people sell, sell us for them. And it's different. It's different because nobody else can make that claim. My response to that is uh, one word, I suppose, and it's about context. Um, and what I really mean is timing. It's because for 30 years, Tim, it did work. But then people started nibbling away at their market share. And their new strategy, when I went in, was copy the new entrants because they were cooler and younger and funkier. And it shook their confidence and they forgot who they were. They were still the global number one. 
uh, it got it, it got a bit tired. You know what I mean? Because it didn't feel like um, for me, it didn't feel like a brand position. It felt like um, a factual statement, which was a little bit dull. But the context had changed. The enemy had changed. The consumer had changed. And it just wasn't as effective as it was, basically. That's correct. The, the, on the subject of attention, which I know George talked about, and attention is number one. And then once you get their attention, say something to make them remember you and choose you is my belief. But um, it wasn't getting their attention as effectively as uh, some of the things that some of the competitors were saying. And so they came to you and they're like, hey, this is what our competitors are doing. It's working. It's taking our market share. Do that. What's our that? Is that, is that what they were asking for? They basically had an aware, awareness brief, Tim. It was very simple. It was help us to communicate our core proposition on a global stage. But their core proposition was, hi, we're Sage. So that's not a proposition. That's, hi, we exist. You know, We are an option for you. But they didn't expand nor did they really understand why they should be chosen over the competition and the the new entrants were had compelling reasons why they should be chosen versus sage well they did have this like you know eight out of ten people recommend us which is which is a way to position but the problem is that wasn't working anymore and so they were just saying hey let's just do an awareness campaign where we introduce ourselves to people and we just say hey we're sage so is that kind of when you took a step back and you're just like okay we really need to figure this out more before we just jump in and start yapping because uh, it's not going to work. It's not going to be Absolutely. as effective I mean, as they it could, used to be. They could have spent a lot of money on raising awareness and tried to shout louder than the other ones, but they had nothing to say. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what to say. So I, I worked with them for a period of six months to give them something to say. So what was the thing that you gave them to say? We ended up with a two-word solution, which was, it was actually irresistibly sensible. Mm-hmm. When Sage launched, entrepreneurs had side partings they weren't looking like you so sage it were historically talking to men in suits so i said i think sage sage to me and it's not just because i'm now a 52 year old guy i was about 42 at the time um i said it, it's about the safety of and the, you don't talk about your slippers is slippers an american word those things you put on your feet when you wander around the house at home okay cool mm-hmm. let me let me ask you who, have you got a pair of slippers uh no okay Cool. Well, you know what? In five years, you may have a person. Yeah. I, I mean, I would like them. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just a barefooted, barefooted okay, guy, cool. I guess. You know what? This is, this is your future, Tim, and it's horrible. So get ready for this. In the <laughs> yeah. You'll be saying to your friends, fucking hell, I've got these slippers. They're really nice. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really have Michael with a Y to uh, think that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All these things are in your future. Well, basically, I wanted them to say, look, don't, don't leave sage for a, for the sexy one down the street the grass is greener here so it's kind of just stay with what works don't be distracted by these transient momentary new kids on the block to disrupt their position and reinforce sage's existing category leading um position so irresistibly sensible was the perception that i wanted them to build inside the organization to be proud of their boringness actually to be proud of their boringness yeah, it kind of uh, reminds me of one of my favorite uh, ads and brand positionings ever was for Clearasil, and it was, "We don't know you, we just know your acne." You know, it was basically saying like, and and the execution of it was like them trying to be cool and totally failing at it, and just total self-deprecation. And it was hilarious, and they used all this dumb stock footage, and you're like, do you like this? And it's like somebody ripping their jeans, and they're just missing the mark, and they're like, look, we don't know you, we just know your acne. And ultimately, that's what people care about. They're like, I don't give a shit if you're 
cool. I, I care that like the thing that I'm using you for is the best is going to get rid of my acne. So I, I love that uh, way of thinking, you know, embracing boringness and just being like, looks don't matter when it comes to functionality. So uh, you get found out, don't you? You've got to be true to what you always were. Yeah. Because people remember, I think with visible brands anyway. Yeah. It's also extremely difficult to like completely change perception about yourself. And if you have something that's you recognize for and, and people like it, it's better to embrace that. Okay. You built this brand consultancy. You have this arm. Everything seems to be going great. But then you turn 50 and it seems like a lot, you, you were unsatisfied or what kind of led to this, I guess, as I see it and correct me if I'm wrong, midlife crisis. You're right. I mean, I've been in a midlife crisis since maybe 20, something like that, all my life. You know, I just constantly crave change and I'm constantly insecure about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. You know, if I'm successful, I'm thinking I've done it by accident, that kind of thing. But to answer your question, it was actually the age of 45. One of the key players in the team left and I thought, can I be arsed building this up again? And why am I doing this anyway? And the key question I asked myself, it wasn't about what do I do? It was about what am I for? Because what am I for tiptoes towards that word which people like you and me use quite a bit, I suppose, which is purpose. So what what am I doing? You know, what am I enjoying myself? I make I'm making money. You know, I had money. I didn't feel purposeful. I I I had an idea in my head. Someone said to me once, Tim, on your deathbed you see two films. You see the film you were in and the film you wish you were in. And the objective is to be to see one film. I was constantly trying to earn money to pay a not far off million pound wage bill. My brain was thinking, what do I say to them to get them to choose me? Rather than what is the, their brief is awful. Their objectives are imprecise. They don't know why they're doing this, but I couldn't do that because I had the pressure of, you know, the wages, et cetera. But now I'm a freelancer. I say no more. I say, it, it doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And it'll kill your business. But the last thing I'll say on this subject, Tim, is I had to get a new tribe of people because my, my mates all thought I was just re- gone mad because I'd, ter- I'd walked away from a good wage and a big team to do something I'd never done before that cost me six figures to get off the ground. But I was doing what I felt I was born to do. So do you think you're happier now as a result? Or are you still kind of searching um, and, and finding the right thing? It's a good question. I'm not searching because I'm happy doing what I'm doing. So I don't want to be anywhere other than I am. I always want to do what I'm doing better. And I'm, I'm never really satisfied, but I'm much more content. The 50-odd thing was me pissed, I think, saying to a friend of mine, you know, when I'm fi- on my 50th birthday, I'm going to write a story to see if people feel compelled to read what I think the world looks like to me from here. And I'm going to write one story a day for 10 years. So that's 3,600 stories. And I'm now 800 stories in and about 10,000 people read them every day but at the beginning no one read them and I thought I don't know if I can write I mean you're a writer by trade I'm not so I just started spitting out stories and as it happens some people have started to follow it now uh I am not a writer by trade English was one of my worst subjects I just needed to I just wanted to get my foot in the door as a creative I started out more as an account person and it was like a fake it till I make it and I never really made it as a writer uh I had a copywriter partner 
but I was really good at coming up with ideas. I was good at pitching and I could lean on him for the craft of it. So it was like, absolutely had no, I just didn't know how to use Photoshop. So it was like, I guess the only way I can like do it is to be like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a writer, you know, but you, you do get better at it. I'm curious, like doing this every day for two years, have you noticed your skills get dramatically better? It's a really interesting question. I would say that, um, what's the word? Technically, the answer has to be yes, because copywriters sometimes comment on what I write. But when you said a moment ago, you never actually made it, my brain said, well, who, do, who tells Tim when he's made it or not? If you decide you've made it, then you've made it. I don't know if I'm good at writing. I just know that about 10,000 people a day read what I write. I don't know what they're judging, um, but they're giving me a few minutes of their time every day. So it's a, strange, it's a strange one. Technically, yes, I'm getting a little bit better, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, like, the question about making it is a good one. I think it's about accepting that I'm good at something. Um, and back to your question of satisfaction, I have a really complicated relationship with motivation and, like, what's healthy motivation and what's not, and do I give a shit, and that sort of thing. Because I'm, I'm very motivated. But I'm curious what... Because you write one every day. And I see a lot of people, myself included, that would just give up on that. It's such an ambitious thing, but you've been very disciplined about it. So what motivates you in general, you know, even for this or beyond this? With the writing, I'll answer that specifically first. When about literally maybe a dozen people were following my writing, um, if I missed one, they'd say, where is it? I would get an email going, where's my daily shit thing that you write so I, I i felt a responsibility and then that that six and 12 became you know between five and ten thousand as i say this is the truth if one person was listening to or reading what i'm writing i would write it so they could i'm not writing it for them by the way i'm writing it for me but i don't want to if i say i'm going to do something i want to be known as a doer not a talker because the world is full of talkers and I'm, I'm lax and lazy in some areas of my life. I really am. And, I, and there's been times where I thought, I'm not going to let this slip as well. But one thing I'm not going to let myself down with is this 50-odd thing. I'm going to continue to write that. So I'm proud of the fact that for 810 days or something, I've written a story every day. But it's been of a certain standard because sometimes it's quite hard. But hard is good for you. Tricky is good for you, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely something to be proud of. So... According to your LinkedIn, I counted it up. You've started, you founded eight companies. Yeah. Um, give or take, you know, maybe something's not on there. Maybe I, I mistook something. So I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, you've made a lot of mistakes and you've learned a lot from that experience. This is number one for me, trying to get gush off the ground and make it successful. And I don't want it to, to fail. So what sort of things did you learn along your journey of starting eight companies as a founder? Why were some successful? Why were some not? I'm very lucky, Tim, in that I've never gone out, I've never been forced out of business. That's luck, I think. In the early days, it's I work hard. Okay, so I just work hard. I just work really hard. But that's not enough. You know, that was, that was not the best way. <laughs> Weirdly, that's not the best way to make money. The best way to make money is to know what you're for and to understand the difference you're trying to make. I mean, you don't have to answer this question on air, of course, but what gush is for is infinitely more important than what gush does because people don't buy what we do. They buy what we do does. Yeah. I think um, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, I'm totally fine to answer it and answer it incorrectly and get your opinion. But I think being a, focusing on being a comedy ad agency, 
you know, there's all this stuff about it being engaging, but the way that we're ending our capabilities deck is something like this. Like we all really need a laugh right now. Um, let's, let's give them one, you know, let's give them some. And it's just uh, giving people a relief during this really difficult time or really anyway to give people a sense of a break, a fucking break and some positivity and some levity. And um, as a brand, people will appreciate that. So I think that's trying to make the world a, a bit happier, trying to give people a break is, I guess, one way to describe it. Do you see that as a category or is that gush? Are there other people who do that or is, is it just you? There's, there's, uh, I've had one, basically it's just us. There's, there's a, another guy who I actually had on the podcast who has a a comedy, uh, advertising thing. It's really focused on like Twitter and like, you know, telling jokes and that sort of thing. But we're like the first comedy ad agency. Maybe there's a reason that there aren't any others. Maybe it's a bad idea, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely, in my opinion, it, there's, there's a place for it. Comedy's so layered and complex and what's funny, what's not funny. It frightens me, you know, being funny is scary for me. You know, or someone said what the scariest thing for me is being a stand up. You know, it's not, I, I couldn't work at a butcher's cause I don't want to chop meat up. And I also don't want to be on a stage trying to be funny. This is just me now. I find that terrifying, terrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, much more, a lot of respect for what, for, for what, for what you're doing because it's hard. But I love the fact that you're in this niche. I really do. Well, thank you. How have you found, uh, you know, over the course of pitching new business or trying to get clients and build a business, how have you found yourself being more successful? What have you learned about presenting your agency in a way that gets people to buy? I focus on what I do does, not what on what I do. Because, so, for example, if you're saying, hi, we're the guys who make people laugh. I don't know why. I'm just going to say this. I'm making stuff up because I get my clients to be braver. That's what, that's what I do. I have a, the credentials over 25 years of building, of building brands. The fact of the matter is that 90% of all business communications isn't even noticed. And of the 10% that is noticed, as you perhaps know, 6% isn't even liked. It's noticed and hated. So that leaves 4% of all business communications that's known and liked. That's where I live. My quest is to rid the world of the 90%, which actually equates to, I think, 40-something billion pounds a year spend in the UK alone on people like you and me getting clients to spend money on things that no one even fucking notices. I hate that. I really do. I don't use the word hate a lot, but that's disgusting to me. So I sit in the 4% and I say, I'll get you noticed. And once I get you noticed, I get you remembered. And once I get you remembered, then you can be chosen. So that's with, with your work, you know, um, the, the, the comedic element, I would suggest, is a means to an end, not an end in itself. I'm not buying funny advertising. Mm-hmm. I'm buying what funny advertising does. And, and, you know, the science behind what you are and do, how engaging and memorable and emotional the connection is with someone that can make you laugh is important, is significant in your world. Michael, um, thank you so much for taking your time. I'm sure you have a lot going on. And so I, I really appreciate it. Anything I can do to help, let me know. I'll take you up on that. Don't worry. Take care. Michael Owen is like a Hansel and Gretel of information. He's just dropping little nuggets to lead a trail towards success. He's just, if you listen to it, there's just so many little things that are awesome and worth repeating. And, and, you know, one of the things we have to do with these episodes is we have to, or don't have to, but we want to create a GIF with a quote, or we want to find something for the beginning to lead off the episode. And it was kind of like, what don't we choose? You know, there's so many things that could work. So 
Michael is a man. I'm sure you love him just as much as I do at this point. And thanks for listening in. Until next time. Mm-hmm.